Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Little Grey Cells. My name is Chris Thurston and as ever I'm joined by Philippa War. Hello. 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 Hi. <laughs> uh, we've just watched the final episode of Season 1 of ITV's Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot's Poirot. Tom Clancy. Yeah, Tom Clancy's Agatha Christie's ITV's Hercule Poirot's Poirot. By Sid Meier's. <laughs> Which is called... The Dream. The Dream. Now, I think maybe we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, but that name to me suggests a kind of... A more otherworldly... It's a bucket of nonsense. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll get... Yes. I was going to say, it suggests a more otherworldly Poirot. Because there are some sort of slightly more abstract or spiritual Poirots coming, to some extent. To a greater extent than this episode, because this episode is about pie crime. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There is a dream featured, but it's certainly more rooted in the high-stakes drama of big pie business it's than not, I had expected. I mean, the pie business is kind of just a... Oh, it's irrelevant, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's... Uh, mm. <laughs> so... Yes, Farley's Pies, Farley's, Farley's pies. Foods has opened a new pie wing. A pie wing. Uh, or something. Um, and the king of the pies. Farley. Has king of pies. opened it uh, and then has summoned Poirot uh, because he has apparently been having a recurring dream in which he ends up dead by his own hand. Uh, and yeah. then the mystery unfolds with him dying, <laughs> ostensibly in the way of the dream. Wow, you've just been... I think we're done. Well, <laughs> no, because that's uh, that's not the conclusion. No. That's, I thought I would do the setup. Mm. I'm experimenting. Okay. With, cause, so for readers who are not familiar with, uh, the transition from very early Poirot to late seasons of Poirot, they go from these sort of 50 minute romps to sort of two and a half hour made for TV movie epics mm. um and so we've been sort of trying to figure out how to do that justice without um going without, scene by scene yeah so i i thought i would experiment with sort of summing up the the intro but it does mean that we've sort of then glossed over a lot of the absolute I think weird probably about half the episode uh, fine <laughs> well, fine okay. let's I go agree. back we, we don't have to go scene by scene <laughs> but you've missed at least one excellent mare. And for that reason, yeah, I do feel the need to and rewind. And a brass band. And a brass band. Like, I'm just saying, and the entire typewriter subplot. Yeah, and the women who are dressed up like they're the, the nursemaids of pies. Yes, basically, there's so, a lot of silly babies in that bathwater. Yeah, well, look, it wasn't a perfect attempt, <laughs> to be honest with you. And it needs some refinement. So let's, okay, fine. Let's do it your way. All right. Uh, let's turn back the clock and look at a big clock. This is our first bit of uh, what we call a narrative bookending, visual bookending. It's called a clock. It's a clock. Basically, uh, we, we kind of, a little bit of an off-kilter intro, a bit like um, the last one, actually, the movie set where you open with the kind of movie being filmed and there's the uncertainty of that. 
They were definitely experimenting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, credit to the Poirot team. So we're open with a newsreel, a newsreel story about how well things are going. Uh, it's one of those newsreels. <laughs> Big clock, pies on a thing. Happy people making pies, 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 pies. Um, I wrote this down as ads position. Um, nice, thanks. Nice, yeah. Indeed. Um, who we, was watching it? Do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> we were. Maybe. Do you think it was for like the local news? Pies. They're, they're because news. this must have well, been local to somewhere to have the mayor turn up and say thanks for the for the municipality support. Blah blah. Yeah. So uh, we go from this to the to the pie fortress where most of the action of the um. It's called a factory. Yeah. Pie. <laughs> pork knocks. Um, where the majority of this episode is going to take place. And um, Farley, uh, I, I described when I was trying to make notes, as a, um, a, a Victorian-ass Mother Hubbard, I've written here. He has mutton chops for days. T- tiny, thick glasses, big mutton chops. He's walked straight out of, like, Peaky Blinders or something. Well, I, th- I was going to say just a, a, a really budget Dickens adaptation. Mm, yeah, he's got a bit of the Ebenezer Scrooge about him. Yeah. But if Ebenezer Scrooge owned Greg's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> you there, boy. Fetch me a Christmas slice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fetch me a cheddar and bacon today? croissant. <laughs> sausage roll day. It's always sausage roll day. Um, anyway. Get me a meal deal. <laughs> He's accompanied by a short squat mare. Yes. When I say that, I mean as in town mare, not like a, a female horse. Um, who, uh, one scene, maybe extra of the week, just on that basis. Mm. Um, he walks into a, uh, a pie factory full of women dressed like midwives, as you, uh, said, mm. that is sort of dressed and shot like a, uh, Nazi U-boat hanger. Um, there's something, and there's a brass band there, and, uh, well, it's the industrial age, my friend. It is, yeah. There's a brass band, um, and he uh, alludes in his uh, speech to celebrate the pies uh, that he, his, at very least, his staff are immune to what is implicitly a pattern of politically motivated pie slander. Mm. This is not an important detail. It'll never come back again. But the entire intro of this episode is so weird that uh, it does have a kind of dreamlike quality, which is... He does know. sort of also strike you as a man who cannot read a room mm. to save his life. You know, I think he starts off that speech with, I will call you my friends because I pay you wages. Ah. Nobody laughs. And it's a bit like, oh. And I don't think he means it as funny. I think he means it as, I'm you. I can you bleep that? I don't know what's. Me. <laughs> I'll bleep that as well. Uh, what? Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> goodness. Well, <laughs> sorry, I'm very flustered now. <laughs> goodness. Oh. oh, what a strange episode Gosh. of Paro this what? has turned out to be. Um, <laughs> so, so actually, we're speaking about these lines. Um, we cut away from this because at the back of the room, there are some uh, figures in black kind of watching the speech from the sidelines. Um, they are Mr. Cornworthy, who's got an excellent name, mm. um, who's sort of observing with a wry smile on his face, and uh, Farley's daughter, Joanna Farley. Um, who's played by uh, Joey Richardson. Richardson. 
um, who is soon sprinting in a kind of... Um, you were complaining that there weren't any famous people much. There are actually in this episode, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Oh, I was wrong. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, she she goes sprinting through the slaughterhouse. There's some ominous pig's blood and, and kind of things. But she's only running because she's so horny for Herbert. Yeah, she runs off for a make-out session. Mm, so. With Herbert. Yeah. Who has... Um, Although there's the sign that says slaughterhouse on the inside of the slaughterhouse. It's for the pigs to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really bleak. <laughs> it's a bleak place, Pie Mountain, or wherever this takes place. Um, yes, yeah, so Herbert is her... Um, paramour. Is her paramour, a former, imp- just recently former employee of the pie factory, who's been fired um, by uh, Mr. Farley. Joanna's- for porking. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, and- Ribbled humour. Indeed. And, uh, Joanna says, Oh, I could kill him because her father just fired, uh, Herbert, which means that he doesn't have the money to marry her or something, something. None of this is important, Pip. Well, no, it's because, like, he thought that she should ra- marry Rich because she's an heiress and she can be used as bait to lure in more money, which is how marriage works. Mm. And, you know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if she hooks Herbert, then all she's got is Herbert. Yeah. And her own money, which isn't good enough for your mutton shop man. No. Because he didn't set up his pie emporium for for you to go willy-nilly round the block with Herbert. No, indeed. I don't really know where I'm going with that. No. <laughs> I think I'm just, I'm not really sure who I'm rooting for at this point. Still. Well, I mean, basically, but we've, we've very quickly got our um, motive to kill Mr. Farley, should anyone do that. Mm. And some suspects. So obviously it's, it's neither of them and it's not for that reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so meanwhile, uh, away from the weirdo pie celebration slash makeout sesh, mm. um, in Pyro Towers, um, Miss Lemon and Hastings are just hanging out. Well, yeah. Hastings just comes in and drapes himself over her work. He's like a cat. Or Riker. Well, yes, but I'm thinking more of how my cat used to just come and lie across my keyboard when I was working. You realise this kind of does that. This challenges the Hastings as a dog borrows a cat metaphor, which we've hung this entire show off. You have. Well, I feel like I've made us both complicit in this. (laughs) Just by talking enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's how that works. Mm. Um, So, well, yes, so Hastings is definitely not helping. He's just sort of opening letters and reading them out, which doesn't help. Uh, Miss Lemon is struggling with her typewriter that she hates because mm. it keeps getting stuck. Yeah. Uh, I've had that before. When ta- you type too fast and the keys, like, try and they um, – because obviously a key comes up and it bashes against the ribbon that leaves the mark of ink on the paper, right? Mm. So if you type too fast and two keys come up, they can get tangled up with each other or like mash against each other in a way that like means that they don't come down properly hmm mm. it's a profoundly relatable dilemma for anyone who owns a typewriter used a typewriter not like for any length of time i okay. see i pressed a button on one a couple of times when i was a little kid okay because i used to write on one okay <laughs> sure great fine so anyway the only thing useful thing hastings does here is find a letter from mr cornworthy himself saying that Mr. Farley requests uh, Poirot's advice. Um, uh, Poirot thinks this is interesting simply because the PS on the letter says, bring this letter with you. This is just Poirot being Poirot about something. But there is a, there is a very good line 
um, about pies, which I thought was a good bit of... Um, oh, the sick burn. Yeah, it's a good pyro burn occasionally. You get well, it's this. kind of, he manages to burn pies and Wagner. Yes, which, which is, is fair enough. Yeah, he says, um, uh, you know, he, he sort of lets on that he knows that Mr. Farley is a manu- ma- maker of pies. And, um, no, Hastings says, I think he's a pie man or something. And to which Pyro says, to say that Benedict Farley is a, a, a maker of pies is to say that Wagner made semi-quavers. Wagner is a writer of semi-quavers. Yeah. And, uh, to which Hastings replies, oh, they're good pies then. To which Poirot replies, no, they're terrible. There's just lots of them. Which <laughs> <laughs> is very good. He's very good, isn't he? Oh, boy. Well, some and some. Some and some. Yeah, he has a, a few moments in this episode. He is in real manic pixie dream detective mode again. Yeah, it gets he- going to get, it's going to get more intense, especially as this episode gets weirder, which it will. Um, so nonetheless, uh, Poirot and Hastings head to, um, the pork fortress that night. Um, but unfortunately only, uh, only Pyro's allowed in. Yeah. I so say Hastings must wait in the car. It's, it's like that episode where he had to stay in the garden. It is, yeah. It's like, yeah. please put him outside so he's not allowed in. It's like, oh. So uh, Pyro is, is taken in by a rude butler who escorts him to a study mm-hmm. um, where he is met by Farley, um, who is sat in the dark very much like a Bond villain. With a light shining directly into Poirot's face in the chair, which has been positioned exactly thus. So I'm like 20 feet away from the desk. It is, uh, it, yeah. If, if the, uh, if this all going to seem super suspicious, it is. Yeah. Um, so yes, Farley, and then Farley tells Poirot, like you, you alluded to earlier, that he's been having a recurring dream where he is in his office at exactly 28 minutes past 12 in the afternoon, Mm. at which point he is compelled to go over to the window, look out, and shoot himself in the head. Um, And he's seen a psychiatrist about this, but he thinks it's all nonsense. Uh, He thinks someone's hypnotizing him in order to get him to kill himself. He explains this to Poirot. And then says no one would want to kill him, though. And And also he doesn't want to kill himself, because he's the happiest. He basically bellows, I am a happy man! But he sounds quite a lot like... Uh, kind of. What? How did you describe this? Like a sort of Machiavellian duck or something? Oh no, it was his voice. He sounds like a, a haunted duck. <laughs> it's very strange. This he, whole sequence. Yeah, because he's he's clearly doing a voice, mm. or you know, the actor is. So it's, I'm really happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, he, he actually you know. does go a little bit Scrooge McDuck mm. here. Um, we're trying to as we try and locate. Which part of the kind of Dickens verse is he from? Which includes oh, Ducktown. Also, if people are looking at uh, GIFs for this episode, or not looking at, but looking to, you know, capture the essence of it, there is a moment where he sort of leans back against the window in a sort of very odd way, Farley. Mm. Yeah. Mean, sort of like puts his back against the window and sort of settles into it in a kind of weirdly flirtatious manner yes this this whole scene is really strange um paro is obviously a little bit nonplussed and wants more information but and Fa- also he's trying to protect his face from the searing light yeah uh, but finally refuses to give paro any more information and specifically refuses to actually let him into the office his office because this meeting isn't actually taking place in Farley's office where the um where the dream is set mm. um and so uh 
Pyro says, well, I can't help you because you're not giving me enough information. To which he says, fine, then you have no opinion. Bill me. Bye. <laughs> and demands his letter back. Yes, that's right. He wants the letter back that he used to summon Pyro. Uh, as in, it's a letter to Pyro. It's not like a ritual or anything. Um and uh, Poirot uh, gives him a letter, and I'm 90% sure this is Poirot doing this on purpose for some Manic Pixie Dream detective reason. Poirot, Poirot gives him the wrong letter, just a letter he happened to have in his pocket. Farley looks at it and puts it on the desk. And then Poirot turns around and says, Oh, I'm so sorry, I've given you the wrong letter, and gives him the right letter, at which point Farley's like, Be more careful, man! <laughs> um... <laughs> And um And then Poirot leaves the yeah. Hastings in the car. They just get in the car and go. Mm. Um and that's your lot really for clues <laughs> for this episode. Um Well then we kind of cut to the the daytime don't yeah, we? There's, there's, when three gentlemen who seem to want to form a union yeah, oh. they they establish that the, the pie makers are forming some kind of union simply by making them from Yorkshire. <laughs> well, maybe these are the people that were influenced by the anti-pie industry propaganda mm. from from earlier. Like, despite, you know, one three-minute speech, the propagandists have got through. <laughs> they want rights. They have, and they do, and they do, and they're waiting for an hour to see Mr. Farley, at which point Mr. Cornworthy comes out of his office and says, oh, don't worry, I'll just get him for you. And then walks inside and then comes back out again, all pallid. Well, he screams, doesn't he? Oh, he does. Oh, my God. Fetch the police. And he looks, uh, he looks mortified in a way that is either, um, well, in a kind of very t- TV detective show way mm. that might, uh, look a bit suspicious. It depends how, uh, you know, how studied a performance that is of someone pretending to look mortified. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, I think that's the thing is because like the the level that this is operating on it can do some nice things, but they te- they tend to be more in the realms of like comedy or framing or whatever. It's not to do with subtle acting. Mm. Therefore, the fact that your man Farley looks like a cartoon, you know, Dickensian factory owner supervillain. Mm is you know it's just one of those things and you know it's it does get in the way of any nuanced (laughs) takes on yeah on this anyway um we do then cut to pyro's house for a scene that is genuinely adorable where hastings and miss lemon are raising the issue of the typewriter the typewriter miss lemon is very aggrieved by all of this (laughs) and i can't remember the exact line so um Hey, well, the first Poirot is like, this is the first you are mentioning of this. And Miss <laughs> Lemon is like, I have been complaining for six months. And Hastings goes, she has. <laughs> and to which Poirot goes, kindly do not gang up on Poirot, which is adorable. <laughs> um, and, um, and then. Have I not always tried to make us all happy? And, and she's just like, I don't want to be happy. I want a new typewriter. <laughs> which is the most Miss Lemon line. Like, <laughs> and then, um, Inspector Jap phones and Poirot is the most relieved man at getting a phone call ever. Yeah, from Inspector Jap. Like, oh, thank God there's been a murder. <laughs> um, so anyway, we now return to, uh, Pi Towers. Mm. Um, 
for a big old meeting between all of the characters you've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Um, including a new character who's introduced in this scene, um, who is Louise Farley, Farley's second wife, mm. who's only eight years older than Joanna, his daughter. Mm. Um, and she has the entire look of an Agatha Christie murderess. She's dressed all in black, bright red lipstick, uh, chic black hair. She mm. is sobbing, but so unconvincingly, she might as well be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, yeah. <laughs> and when she's not crying, she's just sort of like staring coyly at Poirot in a kind of like, go on then, you tiny Belgian, catch me, sort of way. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my well, reading of this And scene. also, no one is sad. No one is sad. No one is ever sad, but I mean, you know, no one is sad here. Like Jolie Richardson is sort of glaring out of the window in sort of furious riding trousers. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like the only person who's upset is clearly so not upset and acting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we do go through the, the steps of what happened in, in uh, Farley's actual office. With Poirot, it has a, which probably was shot at around 1228. Uh, there's a detail to do with the fact that his window just overlooks a blank wall. Why is that important? Mm. Um, and, um, yes, there's a sort of a general sense that, you know, he, he shot himself. The gun was in his hand. The gun only had his fingerprints on it. Uh, it's a closed room, obviously, because we, Agatha Christie were talking. So, um, you know, there's, um, there's, there's no way it couldn't possibly be a suicide. Couldn't be not be a suicide. Therefore, it's definitely a murder. Probably we don't know yet. It well, is. that's what Poirot says almost exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, it is the the thing that looks exactly like the suicide. Therefore, it was a murder, and Poirot must solve it. Yeah, he says that again in a bit, which in a way that is almost uh, a rare moment of like Poirot completely winging it, which is is really good. Uh, we then cut to, uh, Joanna, who's getting over the death of her father by fencing a unnamed, uh, mustachioed elderly man. Is he not your extra of the week? I thought with your fondness for fencing, he might be. Um, he doesn't really do anything. He fences. Well, yes, but he, he doesn't. <laughs> That's he, his whole thing. He doesn't do it in an especially, like, funny way. He doesn't steal the scene, which I, the, the mayor comes close to that with his big hat and yeah, cool medal. But... Okay. So she is fencing, um, and... Oh, Poirot's basically falling over, trying not to get hit by the fencing. <laughs> yeah, but it he does a sort of weird sneaking, like weird bouncy sneaking. This is probably quite gifable as well. That's true. Um, it, I don't know, it, it's but just one of the point weird of fencing is details. that you go in a straight line. Yeah, Poirot's not really in any danger here. <laughs> he, this is not there, this is not the fence's issue, it is totally Poirot's issue. Poirot is almost extra of the week here for, <laughs> for how weirdly he navigates the background of this scene. Oh, look, you found an extra of the week in the fencing room, but you're just too proud to say it's the one that I picked out for you. Um, from this, <laughs> from this, uh, Jolie Richardson's character, uh, launches into what I think is a very laudable thing to do if you are innocent in a murder mystery, which is to explain all of the reasons why it probably was you and then just dismiss them. So yeah. she, she brings up the, she brings up Herbert. She brings up the, 
uh, her, the fact that she's the sole heir, well, not sole heir, but like she's the prime beneficiary of Farley's will. She brings up the fact that she hated her father. She brings up the fact that she actually quite benefits from him dying and is kind of happy about it. And she does all of this in the context of, but I didn't do it. Mm. Um, and so good on her, really. Mm. Sort of, and also she's a pretty lady, so Poirot is gonna be predisposed to like her. Yeah, but she's not, um, unlike a lot of the young women that Poirot kind of becomes kind of protective of, she's not, a victim of this circumstance. In fact, she kind of owns the fact that she is, she's kind of one here. It's weird, isn't it? Because there are so few people in this episode, really, that, and they, this plot kind of makes it so clear that it isn't her. Mm. That it's like, okay, well, the only people that it can be then. So. Yeah, because I think, I think it was at this point that you asked me, like, if I'd figured it out. Yeah. And I had one kind of wild guess because I hadn't yet. And then about two minutes later... I correctly guessed it. Obviously, I know in hindsight that I correctly guessed it. And it was basically just because of the remaining pieces. Um, there's, um, especially in the next scene, which is when Pyro has a meeting with, uh, Mr. Cornworthy in the office where he met Farley, like the night before. Oh, one of the things that, um, Joanna says, which is important as a clue is, um, I think it was in that scene. It might not have been though. Um, is uh, Poirot asks about her father's eyesight? Oh, of course. And yeah. she says that he couldn't see basically unless he had his glasses on. So the implication there is that the prescription was incredibly strong. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the whole not recognizing the fact that it was the wrong letter, uh, in the office meeting bit, um, you kind of know is going to be incredibly important. And that was the moment where it all clicked into place for me, particularly because the next scene, it turns out that the office that, uh, Paro met, uh, Farley in was Cornworthy's office, uh, overlooking the same wall, but, um, and, and just next door and just next door. And apparently, um, always used for, uh, these kinds of illicit meetings for some reason, illicit meetings about dreams that someone may or may not have had. Yeah. Um, and, so at this point, um, I, and this maybe is an interesting bookend to this season is that at this point I was like, man, they kind of have played the, it was actually someone in disguise card mm. quite a lot in these early episodes. Cause you know, it's the hinge, the first, very first episode hinges on that. Not necessarily disguise, more just that the person you thought doing a thing wasn't, you know, like with the ventriloquism and stuff. Right? Yes. Um, yeah, sort of, um, and actually things that, um, maybe we're skipping ahead a bit here, but things that sort of, um, this is super interesting actually from a production point of view, things that can be difficult on television because, uh, it's the lodger, right? That really does have the problem mm. that, um, the guy is obviously acting as the other character. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, the one, the episode with the twin yeah. brothers also has the same issue. Um, and that's because these have been adapted from prose where those kinds of things can be completely disguised in the text. Whereas when you have television and actors, um, it's, it's a lot harder to do. Similarly with, um, uh, problem at sea where, you know, the staging of that one shot is so weird and makes it clear that the guy's throwing his voice. Yeah. I think that one of the things here though is that, um, I haven't read the short story, actually. Um, but I would be interested to know just how much of the, um, the staging 
is directed by that or if it is at all because things like having a light shining directly into Poirot's face and having the lights down really low in that room that's automatically massively suspicious right yeah and so it's like okay well then you either aren't who you say you are or there will be a bloody good reason for this and there isn't so yeah and so i tell you what we've kind of we've not been exactly coy about how obvious this is so should we continue this discussion from the point of view we didn't we'll say what it is because we'll get there oh yeah for sure i mean so farley isn't the one that had the meeting with poirot surprise surprise it was cornworthy in disguise who has sort of set up this thing by essentially describing how the dude will seem to have died as if it was like a post-hypnotic suggestion thing um to sort of try and get Poirot to sign off on that when it actually happens. But what happens is he shoots Cormorthy from his window and then goes in and puts the yeah. gun in his hand and, and stages it to look like he goes, a oh my God. Yeah. So. And so this is where one particular aspect of the production becomes super important, which is that Cormorthy and Farley are the same actor. So in all the Farley scenes. So at the very beginning, when you see actual Farley, mm. it's actually a bit of television sleight of hand because it's the same actor as Cornworthy. And you see them both in that scene, but never in the same shot. And then that kind of explains why Farley is so ludicrously costumed. Yeah. Like he's got the huge mutton chops and the big glasses and the silly, you know, hair and the crazy Victorian hair all to disguise. And whereas Cornworthy is a tightly cropped kind of English gent. Um, basically because they have to lean super hard into that character so you don't notice they're both being played by the same actor. And so that's a little bit of... It's sort of, like basically having someone dressed up as Father Christmas. Yeah. And it's because I think in an earlier episode of the season, they do have an actor dress up as another character that you've seen. And it super doesn't work. And it super doesn't work. So this is the other way where the show is actually kind of uh fibbing to you a bit or being a little bit dishonest because... Um, what you're kind of asked to believe is that obviously the reason that Farley's, uh, Cornworthy's disguise as Farley is so successful is because they're the same person, yeah. which is, you know, that's sort of like, it's not necessarily, you know, um, fair to, 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 to put that detail in for an audience that's actually looking to solve a mystery, if that makes sense. Mm. It's really like how, how you solve that problem as a kind of mystery showmaker is interesting. And it's interesting that they try a bunch of different approaches to it, but. I do find this, as soon as I figured that out, I was like, ah, mm, that seems a little bit unfair to me. Unless, unless, you know, they, the, then the twist was that he'd been Farley all along or something. Mm. I think it's also annoying because I think at that point, there's not really much you can do other than sort of say this thing is a clue anyway, because the other thing, another thing that they could have done was have Poirot go off to the meeting with Hastings not being allowed in. And obviously Hastings is usually the narrator. So all he would then need is um, Poirot telling him what happened afterwards. Right. Mm, yeah. But every time Christie doesn't show you something. Yeah. It's super it's, important. It's or at least it's worth being on your guard because it'll either be relevant or it will be part of the red herring subplot that's also usually running along in the background. Yeah. Um, so obviously that that sort of skips ahead a bit, but there are lots of good there's lots of good stuff left to come, even despite knowing the mystery at this point, including uh, the scene immediately following this, which is one I think we mentioned earlier about where Paro to Jap on the stairs and is sort of taking Jap through it in his most manic pixie dream detective way, uh, where he does say um, basically, 
where there's absolutely no reason to believe this is anything other than a suicide. So it's definitely a murder. But he says that normally when Pyro says that, it's at the point where he's figured it out, mm. if that makes sense. Like he has all the pieces now. And then to nobody, he just says, um, you must give the, he says to, to Jap, you must give the little gray cells time to do their work and then send the Jap away. And then says to nobody and give Pyro time to figure out who did it and why, which is basically like his way of me. Like he doesn't know. know. He's completely guessed. Well, basically it feels like he, uh, cause I was actually looking down at my embroidery at that moment, but, um, I think it, it, seemed like that was the moment where um he implied to Jap that he he'd already figured it out but that Jap needed to do some of the legwork himself you know yes and which then, he does do right and yeah. then Jap kind of like uh, takes his leave and then Poirot's like oh, now I need to stop <laughs> yeah. really quickly because uh <laughs> and this sort of Poirot having problem with this actually comes on really quickly because we cut back to Poirot's flat and Pyro is pacing back and forth. And his little I love gray cells are not, not playing yeah, ball. His, his little gray cells are not working. He had fish for breakfast and nothing. Um, and he confesses to, um, Hastings that he feel like he might be losing some of his acuity. Um, and he blames, he blames old age and fast living. <laughs> and, um, and to which Hastings replies, you don't, you know, you don't live particularly fast. Pyro, uh, to which um, Pyro replies, well, not now, but when I was a young man. Alluding- he tries to imply that he was sort of very, you know, uh, had a, a dissolute youth. And Hastings <laughs> just keeps going, really? I say. <laughs> Hastings is sort of devastated by this revelation almost that Pyro has well, some sort of like saucy sort of, lad past. I think he's really struggling to reconcile it. To be fair, so is the viewer. <laughs> Especially yeah. because it feels like David Suchet might be playing it for like, not not for laughs because he took the Poirot stuff very seriously and did so much research. But I, his expressions are ambiguous enough that it could be taken both ways, either that or taken a few ways, either that he's sort of having a little bit of fun at Hastings's expense, which is something that he does pretty often. Mm. Um, or that he is genuinely trying to imply this. And it's m- more just that Poirot's version of fast living doesn't necessarily tally with the rest of the world's version of fast living, <laughs> or even just that, you know, he, uh, well, this is the thing. So yeah. we, we do get a little sample immediately of what Poirot's version of fast living is which is that he must have a second tisane. Yes. He already has his tisane. So they burst into Miss Lemon's office where uh, Miss Lemon versus the typewriter. She's about to kill someone with that typewriter. Yeah, it's continuing. And um, I love this scene partly because of... So uh, we discover that... So the the clue that is going to set Poirot off on the the journey to Revelation... from the previous scene when she says uh, that the typewriter is more than flesh and blood can bear. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. It's just when um, Pyro asks Miss Lemon what the time is, and she leans out of the window to see a church clock tower. And, um, and, or a clock tower, I guess. And, um, this is the revelation that Pyro needs to realize that someone leant out of the window at the pork house. Um, and, um, but she does this because she can't wear a watch because, uh, because her, of ma- her magnetism. Because her magnetism. And, um, and, Hastings does the best little background, I say, at, dis- at the discovery that Miss Lemon is uh, magnetic. Mm. Um, so he's discovered that Poirot has some kind of fast living, hard living past and mm. that Miss Lemon is a human magnet. And both of these are kind of shattering revelations in 
in Hastings HQ. <laughs> we're also going to do see another side of Hastings by the time end of this episode. So we're kind of like getting we're getting the the Poirot Knights version of all of them. I think mm, that's all true. of them. Miss Lemon is a woman who could kill a typewriter. Yeah, um, well, the thing with is her she, own magnetism. But I mean, she doesn't. Just before all of this clock business happens, she does. Um, she does realize the gravity of the two Tazan situation by not complaining about the typewriter that she clearly wants to do, yeah. but canning it because Poirot has already had his nine a.m. Tazan and is asking for another, and it's just it's all go. However, her window thing is sufficient to kind of set Poirot's little gray cells back on the course to where he wants them. So he's immediately kind of transformed into. a bubbling manic pixie dream detective mm. who rushes across the room and kisses miss lemon on the cheek and says you are beautiful um and it's very poirot it's mm. extremely poirot they then go back to the pie factory for what? a tour with- no no she he then tells her to summon jap and everyone else so that to to go to the hall of the pie factory right because he wants to do his denouement yes but there. he he does make them wait while they get a tour of the pie factory uh, with, I think, one of the guys who was waiting for some kind of union meeting earlier. But he might be my extra of the week, actually. The extremely bubbly pie tour chap. Um, he's just, it's just a, a extremely all-in performance with the limited amount to work that. with. It's, I think it's, I might have just not been paying attention. So it's all about, because Pyro <laughs> needs to know exactly when the things go in the oven and why that's supposed to might oh, result no, in someone I leaning out. I remember this. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm and, just, um, I, the guy's just really going for the role. There's a lot of like, we've got a little joke around here about what the boss does. He does this, he does that. And it's, 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 yeah, he does his best. Basically. Yeah. Um, it's the mystery of how does the boss know when the pies are in the oven or not and when we're running late. He leans shootably out of the window. Yes. Um, so, yes. Meanwhile, there's some moody murder waiting on the stairs. Everyone's sort of being sultry and leaning against things in an aristocratic British way. Hastings is sent off. Yes, Hastings has special orders. Paro pushes a loaded gun into Hastings' hands and says, do you remember what to do? <laughs> so... You know, we we get a little bit of. Um, I mean, I watched uh, the Kenneth Branagh it's Poirot like a movie crime on the watch reenactment on a plane recently, and that 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 uh, version of of, um, of Poirot is a lot happier with the the guns and the action. And we're going to see exactly how much action uh, ITV Poirot can pack into an action sequence very soon. Mm. It's not a lot, mm. um, but yeah, they they have um. Uh, Paro goes, is in doing the full show. He kind of takes everybody on a tour of various offices. Um, and there's a brilliant shot where, um, they really want you, as in the TV team, really want you to wonder what Hastings is possibly going to do with the gun. Mm. You know, let's not leave out the fact that maybe Hastings has been sent on a mission to kill somebody. He hasn't, obviously. Um, but there's a shot where Pyro leads everybody out into the corridor and Hastings has got his, like, his He's back to a, a pillar. Column. Yeah, yeah, like James Bond with the gun up. Um, we're seeing him in danger stealth mode. Um, and. But all that's really doing is so that Hastings can go into Cornworthy's office when everybody else goes into Mr. Farley's office. Mm. And why he couldn't have just done that is, I mean, it's televisually pleasing, but it's also kind of like, I mean, yeah. sure. <laughs> and there's a lot of Paro going like, please, will everybody look out of the window to the right? <gasps> look to the left. It's Hastings with a gun. But like the reason that they are leaning out is because the um, the the thing that vents the steam 
is there. So when the pies are about to go in the oven or before they go in, you know, it's mm. basically it's a, it's a handy way of marking whether the factory is on time with things. And that's how he mysteriously knows what the haps are with the factory or when they're running late, that kind of thing. Mm. But because he's leaning out, it makes him a prime target to be looking in completely the wrong direction when your secretary wants to off you yes. so that he can run off with your second wife. Yes. So, um, you know, obviously Pyro does identify Cornworth as the murderer. But- and the thing is, she hasn't actually done anything... Like, she hasn't been making eyes at Cornworthy. The the thing that has incriminated her is she's the only one who backed up the dream story. Right, yeah. Which means that she must have been working with What's It because the, the all dream important wasn't real. dream story. Exactly. Um, however, Cornworthy, um, we're going to get a very rare treat in terms of um, Poirot it's drawing. It's not, not that rare, is it? It's, it's rare that the sequence lasts this long. Mm. Um, I, you know, maybe when we finish... Okay, actually, so you're quite right. So what I'm talking about is obviously uh, fugitive escape scenes. Sometimes they're extremely short. Like, cause, so we've had a couple this season, given that we've covered the whole season, right? Like, my, I, my favorite, this is top three. I don't know if it's top, top for me, because, um, Triangle at Roads has the incredible dynamite boat chase sequence. It's always going to be top. Um, With the disgruntled local policeman who just wants them all to sod off. Yeah, out of the country. <laughs> that's the most fabulous Italian. Um, whereas uh, Problem at Sea has the other great end of the spectrum, which is barely trying to escape, where the where the the named murderer just sort of like runs a little bit across the drawing room while be, before being slightly restrained by someone who isn't really trying i really well, like that one as well the one with the um the twins and the acting and stuff where he just sort of like runs into the footlights of the stage oh, yeah. and then just can't really think of what to do next so he just sort of stops yeah yeah those are good so this one is actually in the middle this is well it, this is more on the action-packed end yes and it's special simply because we get to see hastings fight so you get to see Hastings fight in a really sort of slow tumbling down the stairs way, which I haven't seen on television in many a year because people sort of got really heavily into stunt people, right? Yeah. So this is very much two men slightly clumsily falling down the stairs. And it's all the more refreshing for it. Yes, they they are. So yeah, Hastings goes to tackle Cornworthy, but it doesn't quite grab him in time. The two do fall down the stairs, but in a way that's very clearly two actors trying not to hurt themselves or each other while looking a bit like they're sort of falling down the stairs but it's more I like think i would do that though if i was falling down the stairs fighting someone i would be trying to stop myself from getting hurt you know so it yeah. feels like it's actually probably how i would fall down the it's stairs sort of, while trying to fight someone it also because it's like they're they are smooth uh stone stairs or marble and they're both they're both wearing dress shoes so this is clearly quite a slippery like they're probably quite a treacherous pair, set of stairs anyway well and then the um, hastings knocks over a vase that's but the vase is sort of by the by. I was wondering whether it was going to hit him or, you yeah, know. Yeah, I actually like, thought Hastings just... was like throwing a vase at him, like Donkey Kong, which would have been amazing. But no, it just he, smashes. He just smashes a vase. And then he keeps going, at which point Joanna leans out of one of the windows upstairs and screams at Herbert, who's just pulled up for a random And his motorbike, sand- so this is the greatest, motorbike greatest and sidecar. Thing. And she's just like, get him! Yeah, I love and this. And uh, he's just like, what? So Herbert, could, <laughs> oh, so right. I, don't, I don't know if Herbert counts as my extra, could be an extra of the week. Okay. but he just she goes get him herbert and he goes what <laughs> completely unplaced and then herbert does something incredible 
Well, he, he transforms. Also just says, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> he transforms into a stuntman. <laughs> well, and then he just sort of drives after him and um, Cornworthy knocks over a man carrying boxes that clearly don't have any pies in them whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And then like um, Herbert or, you know, fake Herbert jumps off the motorbike and sidecar, which just go careening off somewhere <laughs> and then, yeah, manages to tackle um, yeah. Cornworthy. There's a, there's a wonderful ping pong of like Herbert's character from like, I haven't been paying attention. What's going on okay i will give chase on my motorbike and sidecar but he's very much like hastings he he's is the kind yeah. of like oh you've asked me to chase this person sure ruff, ruff, ruff. it's basically there are two hastingses in this chase yes there is your bonus hastings mm. and um he he literally like when you say leaps off the motorbike it's actually like i mean it's clearly a stuntman for one thing but it's also he actually like climbs the handlebars and like mounts them surfs the bike for a moment and then leaps into the air it's the most competent bit of like action well, there's a the reason that she's getting with her. Yeah. Because it wasn't going to be for his money or and, his intellect, was and it? And then he says, the greatest post, like, you know, judo pinning, a fleeing murder suspect line in the history of um sort of daft Englishmen flying off motorbikes to catch other daft Englishmen, uh, which is, I've come to elope. It's still on, isn't it? <laughs> And then she's basically like, well, we don't really need to anymore, but I mean, we can if you want to. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, well, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally good. And then the, the other two get led off to, to prison. And then, yeah, we yeah. get oh, the wrap up. We do get, um, we do get Louise, um, who I believe is, um, Romana from Doctor Who, huh. uh, Mary Tam, I think, um, scowl at Paro in her most, I was definitely a murderess in both of the scenes I was in mm. kind of way and go, you just yeah. to kind of hammer and the he, point he home. He bristles slightly, but, but he's also sort of like, like "Yes, that. but uh, I'm right though." Bye. Uh. Exactly. You, you could not best Poirot. And so we get back to um, Whitehaven Mansions. Whitehaven Mansions and Poirot's staggering out of that one car that's been in this entire season, um, carrying a suspiciously large box. Whatever could it be? And Miss Lemon's looking out of the window, pretending like she's not looking out the window, and she's very excited. And then she rushes back to her desk and pretends that she's been there the entire time. And what could possibly be in this box? And then... You thought that big clock at the start, that was foreshadowing? It was. He's Guess what's in the box? got her a big old clock, so she no longer needs to lean out of the window to tell the time. And she is completely livid, but won't say anything. And has to just say what a thoughtful gift <laughs> in between gritted teeth. And then Poirot goes to trim his moustache and tell Hastings about what a thoughtful gifter he truly <laughs> is. I love all of them in this scene because Hastings is staying so much out of this. Like Hastings just just stays out of it completely. Miss Lemon is absolutely furious. You can imagine that she will be going home to drink a massive glass of red wine and shout about this to her sister. Yeah. And uh, Hastings, what I quite like is that after so many times of Poirot being slightly sort of scathing of Hastings or like slightly sort of super sillious about, you know, it's it's Hastings who gets to be like, oh, man, you've absolutely, you know, this one's so, oh, you've missed the point so badly. And uh, Hastings is just sort of able to 
you know, have one up on Poirot in their sort of quiet, ongoing, mm. one is oblivious, the other one is knowing relationship. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and Poirot, yeah, trims his mustache, which I think might be one of the first things we see him do in the show as well. Mm. So I think that might be bookending as well for the whole season. Mm. Um, and yeah, the theme comes up and that's it. That's the end of season one. What do you reckon? So I, will be really glad to see the end of disguise and kind of double identity uh, based mysteries. It's a very five out of 10. Yeah. And, and I think we've had a bit of a run of them because we've had a bunch, I think we've had a run of mysteries whose solution hinges off something visual that comes across as a bit contrived on TV, mm. um, which is just a thing. I think also sometimes Agatha Christie's stuff, particularly short stories, can be like that you know because yeah. you know that they are very short sometimes and it's just like okay well there was a clever thing or one clever thing but it's not you know it, it, you would struggle to make it last for an entire show length or you know that kind of thing mm, so totally yeah i think it as once they start getting really into the novels rather than the collections of short stories then that tends to be more interesting or like, you know, more in yeah. the vein of and there's, there's more an actual plot. <laughs> I'm really, like, you know, obviously, you know, you, you alluded to it at the start, but we are going to have to rethink the format of, of this podcast when we get into those epic two hour plus, uh, Poirot's. However, the thing I'm really looking forward to is the, when they can start unpacking some of the other characters and their relationships. We've definitely, there are good episodes in this season, but there's also been quite a few where, you set up something like, for example, Herbert and, and Joanna in this episode. In later Poirot's, those kinds of things will feature a lot more heavily and be a much bigger part of the story. And it won't be like a scene per character, really. You know what I mean? Whereas at the moment, it, it feels that way a bit. It's interesting because when those are done well, they're really good. But when they're not, you can really feel that they could have just been shortened into True. the yeah. one or two scenes or whatever. I so suppose, it's, yeah. it'll be interesting to sort of to go case by case and sort of think how that works. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be nice to start talking about actual sort of themes in episodes and things rather than, Mm. um, because especially uh, with, uh, with the short stories and stuff, there obviously isn't enough space really for the, for the B plots or the many of the red herrings and stuff that come Mm. up in, in the longer um longer mysteries and so i think that affects things as well it's not like you can talk about how well you were misled or whatever when it's just a case of well there were four people that could have done it except two of them couldn't have done it so it must have been the other ones yeah 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 so yeah it'll be interesting to to get a bit further because yeah this wraps up season one is it how did you feel about it because obviously i've seen them all before but i you hadn't seen any of them right? i'd seen problem at sea before oh, okay um, oh yeah of course trouble at sea problem at sea problem, problem at, at sea. sea um i'd seen problem at sea before i might have seen one of the other ones um i mean i really enjoy it because like i i really um sort of watch it for David Suchet's performance and that is consistently good. I mean, obviously he gets better, um, but it is consistently good and there are plenty of nicely observed character moments. And I think there are things about the production that um, are um, kind of ambitious and clever and, and that they're trying that are deliberate in terms of how they characterize people um, as well as the things that are slightly uh, wonky sometimes. 
I do really like the lightheartedness of these yeah. as well. They they are very much, you know, that that end scene feels very um representative of the general flavor of the series. Yeah. You know, it's the sort of there is, is this sort of core of returning characters. There's an actual sort of little mini dysfunctional family of you know jap and poirot and miss lemon yeah it feels like it's it's a really strong ensemble like that those central characters are really well drawn i mean i enjoy any scene that more than one of them are in and they clearly have their relationships right there's the hastings and poirot one which is sort of generally stacked in poirot's favor intellectually but hastings is just a lot more sort of enthusiastic and um trusting of people and you know, really very sweet. He's mm. a very sweet natured man. And Miss Lemon, who is incredibly efficient and, you know, has her sort of ongoing projects, um, you know, like her love of filing and her, you know, they, mm. they can be kind of reductive, but I think that Pauline Moran does such a good job of, yeah, you know, she's great. making Miss Lemon a kind of believable and very capable person when I think, you know, like, yeah, um, not to say that the character isn't interesting anyway, but I, I really like how she sort of plays it. You know? Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, these kinds of these kinds of subjects would be good uh, fodder for the next episode we're going to do. Actually, mm. speaking of that sort of thing. Yeah, we are going to do our season wrap up podcast, which is what we decided to do with any listener questions that we might get. So if Mm. you have anything that you want to ask us uh, specifically about Poirot or about season one as a whole, um, then that would be your opportunity. Uh, Yeah. We will try and record that at some point over the next week or two. Yeah. I imagine we just give people a week to get questions in. So, um, or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you'd like to send us a question, email questions at crateandcrowbar.com. Um, and then make sure you include either, like LGC or little gray cells in your subject line. So they're easy to find. Um, and yeah, we will round them up and, and do an episode dedicated to them. And then we'll start season two. And also if you have any particular responses yourself, then, yeah. then feel free to, to send them in. We obviously can't promise to, to read all of them out loud, but we will read all of the emails that we get and like can hopefully use that to round out some of the discussion if we've if we've missed anything or if there's different takes from other people totally Mm. cool uh i guess that brings season one in terms of episodes to a close for us as well Mm, it does (laughs) if you'd like to uh Support the Crate and Crowbar and the little network of podcasts we've got. Then we have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And many thanks to all of our Patreon backers who already support us. So thank you for that. And we do have a, a Discord community, which you can find the link for on our website at uh, crateandcrowbar.com, where people discuss all sorts of uh, video games, hobby, TV, movie sorts of things. A nice bunch of people. I think that's plugs <laughs> pretty much. How can people find you on the internet, Pip? Uh, probably Twitter is best. I'm at Philippa War, which is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R. If you enjoy our TV recaps, you should definitely follow Pip um, for Pip's excellent 
basically one tweet TNG episode recaps. That's Star Trek Next Generation. I should really have threaded those, shouldn't I? Because otherwise it's like you'd have to swim back through a lot of nonsense to <laughs> find, find the gems of the specific nonsense you're looking for. <laughs> I know. Oh dear. Um, but yeah, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. Now, admittedly, I don't really use social media that much anymore. So, um, you mostly find occasional links to things I'm working on. But nonetheless, it does exist. Mm-hmm. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you for listening. And we hopefully will hear from some of you in the next week. That would be awesome. That would be great. Mm. Right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>